Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series of Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My guest today is Andriy Portnov, a Ukrainian historian and essayist, the chair professor of Entangled History of Ukraine at the European University Viadrina in Frankfurt am Oder in Germany. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. I speak to Andriy Partnov about stereotypes we need to overcome when looking at Ukrainian history, about the blind spots of the Ukrainian past and the ideological diversity of Ukrainian intellectual history. The goal of the series Thinking in Dark Times is to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Andriy Portnov, welcome to this podcast. Hello, nice to be here, my pleasure. So, uh, you are one of the most known Ukrainian historians who are actually communicating with the international audiences. And uh, you have you have plenty of time to talk uh, to English-speaking audiences and to German-speaking audiences. So, w- what are those uh, things about Ukrainian history that you still have a feeling that uh, some foreign observers, especially those who were specializing in Eastern Europe, in Russian history, still do not understand about Ukrainian history? I would say, again, maybe I'm wrong, but I would say that paradoxically, uh, nowadays we face more or less the same challenges as uh, some colleagues of ours uh, faced, yeah, let's say 20-30 years ago. You know, when I read uh, Mark von Hagen's articles or Andreas Kapolev's articles from uh, even from early 90s, uh, quite often I have a feeling that, uh, you know, it was written yesterday. What do I mean? I mean that the main uh, challenges, I would say, they are more or less the same. So let's uh, have a list of them. Uh, first of all, that this very strong tendency to reduce uh, Ukrainian topics and Ukrainian history uh, to what is broadly called nationalism. And uh, nationalism not at all in a neutral, analytical way. Secondly, uh, let's say this over-exaggeration of the not just modern but very contemporary topics. So quite often talking about uh, Ukraine is talking about, uh, let's say, today, not even about yesterday in terms of, let's say, yeah, Kuchma years or the uh, transformation Perebudova, uh, Perestroika site in late Soviet Union. So it's very, uh, it's very short. It's reduced to nationalism and also issues related to nationalism like anti-Semitism, violence stuff like that and in my view because of that uh, a lot of people even specialists even specialists they lack a proper not just understanding a proper language to describe uh, what ukraine is nowadays especially of course after the maidan yeah 2013-14 but also what ukraine was 
or let's say during the 20s, the 19th century, because it was and it still is, of course, something much broader, much more complex, much more fascinating than just nationalism in its ethnic version, right? And that is why I think that's a great challenge and, um, yeah, like a task for all of us to strive our best to look for a new language, a new language to describe phenomena uh, we kind of know or we are facing. But we, we see that, for instance, we see that Ukraine's extremely, like, unexpectedly strong response to the Russian aggression, yeah? But we have no adequate language to describe it for the Western audience, yeah, for the Western public. And in my view, historiography is trying its best uh, to deal with this issue, but we are far away from, uh, let's say, uh, systematic and broadly accepted solutions. If I describe uh, to you Ukrainian history, not from the point of your nationalist, but from the point of view of such concept as, as republicanism, uh, by which I understand um, a, an attitude to politics which is anti-tyrannical and in some way anti-monarchical, and uh, in, when, in many ways in line with the major lines of thought in Western Europe, starting from Montesquieu through Rousseau, basically a, an idea that a political body rejects uh, tyranny, and this is one of the key instincts of this political body. If, if we look at Ukrainian history in that way, we understand much better, I think, uh, the current events. We understand much better the, uh, the Ukrainian independence of the early 20th century. We understand much better Ukrainian intellectual tradition in the Russian Empire in the 19th century, from Shevchenko to Drahomanov. We understand much better Ukrainian Cossack history. And even we understand much better the medieval history of Rus, which was also kind of a not really an empire, not really a monarchy, but rather a collection of multiple centers of power. Would you agree with this? Yes, very much, very much. Because again, uh, usually the history of Ukraine is uh, told through this perspective of ethnic nationalism, as if it was the only and the, the strongest uh, phenomena, which uh, I don't think it actually it was, yeah? even in the, let's say, uh, modern time, yeah, in the 20th century. And when it comes to serious issues, like exactly like the phenomenon of the Cossack statehood, it was not a full statehood, let's say, in modern sense, but still, it has a lot of elements of statehood. If you're talking about Ukraine in uh, Grand Duchy of Lithuania, in Rzeź uh, Pospolita, so the Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth, Exactly. We need, we need to face uh, those issues. Let's call it Republican tradition. Let's think about maybe some other solutions. But again, my uh, big hope is that we will somehow, let's say, move away from this uh, extremely reductive uh, tendency, uh, speaking about ethnic nationalism. And, you know, uh, we still have so many examples of it. Like when uh, every single Ukrainian author is called nationalistic just because he or her um, uh, was Ukrainian, is supposed to be Ukrainian, yeah? And, you know, when I read in important books uh, sentences like Ukrainian nationalist Drahomanov, 
I'm thinking like, okay, but if, if we say it this way, we completely like misunderstand what Drahomanov was about. Also in the European context, in the context of, as we all know, German, French, Swiss philosophy and political thinking of his time, right? And the same actually goes with relations to Russia. I've uh, somehow failed to mention it uh, immediately, but of course, this idea that one should look uh, into Ukrainian uh, past first and foremost through the Russian prism, it's very strong. And if we start talking that, look, uh, in terms of intellectual history, but also social history, also such phenomena as, for instance, the, Ma the Magdeburgian law, right? We could find a lot of elements that were present in Ukrainian past, but were not present in the past of Russia per se. Uh, a lot of people would be just surprised because this uh, idea that you should look at Ukrainian past from the Russian perspective is very, very strong. It's also strong uh, on the level of terminology. You know, nowadays, for instance, in Germany, it's one of the most fascinating debates whether we should finally start systematically using Ukrainian uh, geographic names um, when we are talking about history, for instance, the history of Kyiv, right? In the 10th century, in the 15th century, in the 19th century. Or it's much better to keep, um, as uh, earlier, this uh, Russian phonetic version of Kiev. And believe me, quite often, even people who are sincerely, who are sincerely supporting Ukraine nowadays and sincerely tries to understand, it is hard for them to accept Kiev instead of Kiev or to accept Odessa with one S. And that's exactly what we are talking about, because if we have this, let's say, intellectual perspective focused on Russia, Russian literature, Russian philosophy, uh, then maybe it's difficult. If we look from a different perspective, uh, it's much easier, and it's first and foremost about the recognition of, uh, yeah, the right of self-determination, uh, self self-identification. And uh, that is why I'm trying as much as I could to introduce uh, the Ukrainian names into my German language texts nowadays. Right. I, I always give the example uh, of my own name <laughs> uh, because it, it actually I'm trying to say that, look, most probably the prince of Volodymyr of Kiev was called Volodymyr, not Vladimir, as in Russia. And if you look at the Russian language, the way how... Uh, the diminutive name from Volodymyr is pronounced even in Russia, meaning Volodya. <laughs> it's not pronounced Vladya, it's pronounced Volodya. So there are traces of this, of this usage. But let me let me come back to some uh, things that you mentioned. Drahomanov is is a fascinating example, and and thank you to raise it because actually I have three words to describe mm -hmm. Drahomanov in terms of ideology. It's socialist, mm -hmm. liberal, and anarchist. And, mm -hmm. and not a nationalist. Mm -hmm. And if, if, you, if you dig deeper in Drahomanov, you understand how actually he was fighting against Ukrainian nationalists uh, of that time, right? Um, so th this is in, indeed looking through the Russian eyes because from, from Russia, for Russia, of course, Drahomanov was a nationalist, but mm -hmm. in the Ukrainian tradition, he was much more to the left. Mm -hmm. and, and this leads me... And Rahmanov is actually, of course, one of the biggest or maybe the biggest Ukrainian political philosopher mm -hmm. of the 19th century. 
Uh, and, and that leads me to the next question about the nationalism. Actually, if we look at the Ukrainian intellectual tradition, the only um, the only period that we see a Ukrainian kind of a ethnic nationalism taking over uh, the, the leading discourse was a decade, mm-hmm. not more than a decade. It was, I think, from the mid-30s, after Holodomor, um, and of course um, in the in outside of the Soviet Union, uh, primarily in Poland, and up until the mid forties, mm-hmm. uh, and this li- linked to uh, to UPA, obviously, and to OUNUPA discourse. Maybe some some earlier versions were present uh, early in the twenties with Donsov, etc. But if we look wider, if we look at, for example, in nineteenth century. Most of the Ukrainian key figures were to the left. I would say that Taras Shevchenko was, well, um, he was a nationalist in that, in in a sense that nationalism was considered in early twentieth century, uh, early nineteenth century, as a kind of a synonym to democracy. Um, then you, you we talk about Drahomanov. Then we talk about uh, progressives uh, in the late nineteenth century. Then we talk about people like. Uh, Ivan Franko, who was also, I think, more to the left, and um, our great writer Lysia Ukrainka. Then we talk about the intellectuals around Ukrainian independence, around UNR, Hrushevsky, Vinichenko, who was certainly much more to the left. And then uh, in the Soviet Union, we have uh, the dissidents, the Helsinki group, and all, all this movement, which I would call the national democratic movement, kind of a liberal patriotic movement. So people who would pro- who would uh, who would o- obviously protect the ideas of Ukrainian sovereignty, but at the same time human rights, individual rights. So a kind of a liberal, patriotic, um, patriotic um, um, uh, consensus. Uh, would you agree with this reading that actually, if we talk about the Ukrainian intellectual history, uh, there is much more of uh, leftist, socialist, and liberal ideas than purely ethnic nationalist ideas. Yeah, that's a good point because again, like let's, if I may, like let's briefly look at the names you've mentioned. Uh, interwar period, especially in Poland, right? Of course, of course, we should not underestimate the influence of Donsov and Oun. Oun, let's not forget about it. It was illegal, so illegal organization of Ukrainian nationalists but extremely influential at the same time at the same time it is often forgotten and i think it's a big mistake actually that if you're looking especially at the interaction debate in the interval time let us not forget about the exceptional prominence of Vyacheslav Lipinski and if we read carefully Lipinski uh, it is also kind of a project of Ukrainian statehood but not based on ethnic nationalism at all. It is based actually on territorial principle. So on the idea of uh, patriotism and uh, fighting for the statehood based on the territorial linkage to it and its tradition. And actually, I would say it's very close to what we are experiencing um, in Ukraine now. Um, And this resistance against the Russian aggression. And that is why, for me, it's amazing that Lipinski such a prominent uh, political philosopher is rather unknown when it comes to English or German language uh, world and publications. And it's really pity, because if you understand Lipinski properly, in my view, we also understand better why and how uh, people like Omelian Pritzak 
managed to uh, establish uh, the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, how people like Ivan Lysiak-Rudnitsky became so prominent in Canada, and so, so on. So it was never just ethnic nationalism. And as we all know, actually, Lipinski, he was probably the severest critic of Donsov. So uh, it, it's, it's very complicated. Now, looking back at the 19th century, I would say that uh, this leftist trend uh, was not just a dominant one. Of course it was. Uh, let us not forget that this uh, socialist, broadly defined, broadly defined socialism was intimately linked to the program of national emancipation. That is why for Shevchenko, for Dragomano, for many, many others, uh, fighting for Ukrainian uh, national, cultural, language, uh, self-recognition, was simultaneously a social program. So the program of liberation of the peasants, of political education of the peasants. And that is why these emancipatory uh, strands of Ukrainian movement uh, should not be overlooked and should not be again reduced to ethnic nationalism per se. And of course, th that's a pity that we have no proper history, let's say, of socialist ideas in Ukraine. Uh, that would be a fascinating story, because again, who was the first intellectual clearly formulating the uh, notion of independent Ukraine? It was not just a socialist, it was a Marxist, Julian Baczynski. And the guy uh, was from Galicia, so he was a Galician Marxist, right? Uh, who for the first time uh, proclaimed clearly this notion of Ukraina irredenta, as he called it. Yeah, And we're talking about late 19th century. Uh, that is why, of course, if we change perspective a little bit, if you read more texts in original version, in Ukrainian first and foremost, uh, we'll see that the history of Ukrainian political thought is much uh, richer and deeper than one would expect. And then, of course, you're right. And then this deeper reading could help us to explain why nowadays Ukraine, which is so diverse internally, why at the same time it's so strong in responding to Putin's aggression. Because actually, what Putin did, Putin actually followed this primitive logic of Ukraine as the ethnic nationalistic state. And he supposed that uh, Russian-speaking people, they're actually Russians, they will just, you know, be happy about him and the problem is solved. And uh, he faced the social reality that is much deeper than his slash nationalistic view of Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, th thank you for raising these these names, in particular the name of Lipinski. L let us remind to our audience that Lipinski was uh, ethnic Pole, as uh, also some other figures, prominent figures of Ukrainian intellectual history, like Antonovich, uh, Vladimir Antonovich in, in the 19th century. And uh, when I was rereading Lipinski's, uh, Lipinski is a conservative, but not a, a conservative like uh, UPA. So it's not like radical far-right conservatism. It's, it's a kind of a traditional conservatism, monarchical conservatism, this kind of a hierarchical conservatism. And interestingly enough, uh, that it, at that time, in early 20th century, in the 1910s and 1920s, it was also a progressive thought in Ukraine. It was not uh, th this traditional conservatism was also interestingly progressive. And what is progressive about it? 
uh, I think, is that indeed that you mentioned that uh, Lipinski's concept of uh, the Ukrainian nation is very, very much inclusive. So uh, it is very inclusive. It's, it's, uh, it, it parts from the idea that uh, not only it, is, it should be ethnically inclusive, but it should also be uh, inclusive from the class point of view, like from the social point of view, meaning the, the peasants, the, the bourgeois, the aristocrats should find a common language, should find understanding between, uh, between themselves. And I think this inclusivity comes not from the left, it is very interesting, but it comes from... Uh, uh, it comes from, uh, this inclusivity comes not from the left in Lipinski's case, but it comes from the right, uh, from the center right. Uh, so it's interesting how we actually see uh, this inclusive idea of the Ukrainian nation coming from different, different ideological fronts. And uh, we actually cannot really say uh, who was more inclusive, because if you, if you look at Drahomanov, uh, he was certainly also on the side of the in inclusivity of the Ukrainian nation. But at the same time, we see that kind of a 19th century relics in Drahomanov, meaning his uh, hostility to, for example, Crimean Tatar topic or to the Turkish topic, to the idea of, of, of Turkey, or when, when actually he's saying that Turkey and Kremlin, Crimean Tatars, were the key enemies of, the, of, of Ukraine. So... Um, we needed the next generation people like uh, uh, people like Ahatanhel Krimsky to overcome it uh, and to make it even more inclusive. But would you agree that this inclusivity of the Ukrainian nation uh, it actually comes from very different ideological sor sources, both from the left and from the right? I would say that uh, this very idea, the basic idea, let's put it this way, the basic idea of Ukrainian movement especially in the 19th century, the emancipatory idea, anti-imperial idea, one could say, because it was clearly directed against empires, first and foremost, the Russian Empire, yeah? and it was about the free federation of uh, people in Europe instead of imperial order, right? So if you look at this like basic uh, fundamental idea of the movement, we see that it inspired uh, people of uh, truly very different ethnic backgrounds. As you rightly said, Volodymyr Antonovich, Vyacheslav Lipinski, they were Poles. Lipinski even wrote his first uh, programmatic books on Ukrainian history in Polish. So in this sense, Polish, of course, is one of the, as well as Russian, is one of the languages um, that were basic for the formulation of modern Ukrainian uh, political ideology and ideas. But also the same goes for uh, some people of uh, Jewish origin, uh, some people of Russian origin, some people of German origin, and some people uh, of uh, Crimean Tatar, Kremli origin, as Hatan Krimsky himself. Absolutely right. And again, like if you look like more precisely um, and all those stories, like why, why, for instance, a person like Oswald Burkhardt, a very talented, at first mostly Russian and German-speaking uh, literary scholar in Kyiv, why he still decided to become a Ukrainian language poet and to link his 
um, literary work and academic work with Ukraine. I think it's very important to keep in mind this anti-imperial notion in it. And uh, it also, in my view, explains the logic of uh, mass movements in Ukraine after the collapse of the Soviet Union, especially, again, if we compare it to the movements in some other countries, some other former Soviet republics. Um, So in this sense, uh, inclusivity as something typical uh, for Ukrainian political tradition is kind of an obvious point, but it needs to be made especially in, let's say, international debate, because, as I already said, uh, this uh, extreme dominance of, uh, let's say, an attention to Donsov type uh, of ideology uh, still prevails, and it's still very, very visible. Uh, but I hope uh, this will change and uh, we'll have a new... What we really need, in my view, we really need a new uh, history of Ukraine generally, but also a new history of Ukrainian uh, political thought, a new history of Ukrainian literature, which will also include all those authors uh, like Jewish, Crimean, Tata, Polish, and so, so on. We need a new history of Ukrainian economy or economic history, because that's a topic where actually we could uh, much better see uh, the notion of colonialism, first and foremost Russian imperial uh, colonialist policy, and so so on. So there is a great deal of work to be done. Yes, I I agree absolutely. And uh, on this podcast, I uh, let me refer to my interview, our listeners to my interview with Rory Finan, a uh, prominent Cambridge scholar. His book, which was published in late 2021 about Crimea, and I, I think it is it is a fantastic book showing this new uh, kind of a maybe even not new approach, but old new approach, uh, looking in these uh, very interesting intersections interactions between, for example, Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian and Kirimli and Crimean Tatar literature. Uh, I I really uh, share with you this uh, this idea that a lot of Ukrainian history can be explained with this anti-imperial move and the struggle with the empire, and uh, not only in this struggle, but sometimes the humor rewriting of the empire, the sarcastic rewriting of the empire. Because for me, uh, the clear example is the Aeneid of Kotlarevsky, uh, which is uh, which is a very interesting thing and. We we don't talk a lot about this. I, I think in the how uh, Kotlarevsky's Aeneid uh, is uh, kind of a uh, can be looked through the eyes of the global literature. How it connects with Virgil's Aeneid because Virgil's Aeneid was a clear example of how you create imperial literature, how you create the imperial myth, and uh, Kotlarevsky's Aeneid is certainly anti-imperial myth. It is the Cossack myth, which uh, kind of a um, explodes or implodes the empire from within. But at the same time, we know that there are lots of Ukrainian historical figures who are actually involved in the construction of, of the empire. The The examples um, we know, of course, is, is the examples of the late uh, 17th, uh, early 18th century, the, the period of Peter I, 
we don't we don't call call him the great in Ukraine, right? We we call him Peter the First, the Russian Tsar, the creator of the Russian Empire, and Ukrainian intellectuals like Feofan Prokopovich or Stefan Yavorsky, who actually contributed to to the construction of this empire. We can we can talk about the early nineteenth century people like Bezborodko, some some others. Uh, who were involved in this Russian imperial administration. We can talk about the Soviet Union and, and people with Ukrainian origins who played a, a certain role in that. So w- what is, in your opinion, what should be Ukrainian attitude to those people? Should we trade them as people who made the wrong choices? Who, who Should we trade them as people who stood on the wrong side of history? Should we, should we trade them as... Um, as people who who wanted to really to reform the empire to uh, to insert it because i mean with prokopovich it's obvious that he was trying actually to bring the major trends of the european uh, political political intellectual tradition into the this moscovitsardom and future russian empire make it more make it more secular probably more centralized what should be our attitude to those people yeah that's a very good question because in terms of um, writing history, in terms of writing history, I'm sure that uh, we need uh, to research, to study, and to know all of them. So we, we need to include them into our research. And that's actually what I did myself, for instance, with my Dnipro book, because uh, the history of my native city, it is, let's not pretend it's not, it is part of the imperial history of the Russian Empire. And that is why we could not just, you know, erase them and pretend there were no people like you mentioned, like Bezborodko and many, many others. And actually also like the first um, Ukrainian writers in southern Ukraine, for instance, um, uh, Kashchenko or Zalubovsky, who were at the same time uh, imperial officers, actually highly ranked uh, imperium people and uh, Ukrainian writers that was possible in late 19th century. So we need to know their stories. Uh, They deserve their own place in Ukrainian history. At the same time, I would put it this way. We need to uh, treat and to, to read them in a proper context. As you started talking about Prokopovich, if you want to understand Prokopovich, of course, it's very easy to say, yeah, it was a kind of a treason, he did it for money, uh, probably partly so. But it was also very much based on his own uh, philosophical, right, theological ideas, uh, the ideas from the uh, Kiev Mohyma Academy, and so, so on. And the same goes to the Soviet period. Because, you know, if you look... Uh, precisely, for instance, at uh, not just national communists from the 1920s, but on people, let's say, even in late Soviet Union, like Sherbitsky and others, uh, we should uh, precisely analyze how it happened that uh, people who were raised, uh, educated in Ukraine, who knew the language, yeah, why and how they decided to become, uh, yeah, the supporters of the Soviet project of the Imperium project. And I would say on the one hand, it's very naive, uh, even if sometimes politically understandable, idea to present them as, you know, just Ukrainians. Yeah, some writers or some uh, 
uh, let's say uh, mathematicians or, or physicians or whatever on the other hand uh, on the other hand let's also not pretend that they were not automatically ukrainians just because of the fact that they uh yeah did some pretty important job uh, for the russian empire or for the soviet union uh, that's about uh, the way how people socialize how they yeah how they make choices i would i would generally say that history of ukraine is very much about the history of the choice like for instance you've mentioned the dissident movement let's not forget that of course the majority of writers from this generation yeah of the 60s uh, they, uh, yeah, they became just Soviet writers, sometimes very successful Soviet writers as uh, Dmitro Povlichko or Ivan Drach or many, many others. And uh, some of them, uh, for other reasons, they, uh, yeah, they made another choice, like the choice of Vasil Stus or the choice of Ivan Sokulski, if you're talking about Dnipro, for instance. And quite often you should pay for your choice. So it, it's it's very it's a, it's it's really it, it, it's a painful story. It's a tragedy, but in my view, of course, both Stus and Drac, uh, they deserve their place in the history of Ukrainian literature. Uh, and that is why I am, of course, very much against, you know, any attempts to just like, you know, stop raising some topics or stop talking about some people, because that's exactly what Soviet propaganda uh, tended to do. You know, I could tell you kind of an anecdote. I remember I was a student. I came to Lviv uh, to my professor, my teacher, Yaroslav Isayevich, a prominent scholar who was born uh, before the war in Poland. And he told me, you know, Andrei, uh, for me, uh, it was something completely new, like in the 50s, in the 60s, uh, to see the portraits of some Ukrainian historical figures in Polish books, because it was forbidden uh, to put those portraits in uh, Ukrainian book publications. Actually, if you look, for instance, at the Soviet uh, books on the Second World War, you'll never have Bandera photo or Andriy Melnik photo or something like that. Yeah, So we were not supposed to know even how those people looked like. And I think actually nowadays we need to know as much as possible about all of them. And uh, we also need to put them into proper context. People like Petro Shalist, for instance. It's an incredible story. Yeah, so the first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine. So the guy who, on the one hand, the same person, on the one hand, who supported uh, Ukrainian cultural initiatives, like the opening of the Hortizia Museum, or the establishment of uh, Shevchenko Prize, or when nowadays we are discussing about like who deserves <laughs> to be decorated with Shevchenko Prize. Let's not forget it was invented by uh, Petro Shalist in his year, so in the 60s in Soviet Ukraine. On the other hand, he was the one who strongly supported Soviet invasion uh, to Czechoslovakia. And we are talking about the same person. So let's not uh, simplify him and others uh, let's look at them in the entire complexity and let's not be afraid to do that because, again, uh, there is no reason for us to be afraid looking at such um, tragic and complex issues of Ukrainian history. On the contrary, on the contrary, it will help us to understand better uh, why Ukraine survived, why Ukrainian project proved to be so powerful. Because again, if you like, let's look back at the 19th century. Like, imagine you have a group of intellectuals talking about a joint, a common political project, 
for mostly peasant population, Ukrainian peasant population, on both sides of this Bruch River, so in the Russian Empire, in the Austrian Empire. Who would believe that such a project would uh, win over much stronger projects, the Russian one, the Polish one, uh, the Austrian one, the German one, of course, the German vision of uh, Ost-Middle Europa. But actually, it proved to be uh, to be so powerful and so strong uh, that uh, even uh, people like Stalin, uh, they were forced uh, to accept it and to use it in their own politics. And then as the result, we have Ukraine, the borders of Ukraine as we have them now. So in this, in this sense, one could say that ideas matter. It's not just, you know, something. And what Drahomanov wrote, again, like, let, let's come back to Drahomanov, if I may. Drahomanov, in, in uh, 1870s, 1860s, 1870s, in Geneva, so far away in Switzerland, he made this very clear point about the future borders of Ukraine. And if you look at Drahomanov's map, imaginary, of course, at the time period, the map of Ukraine, it corresponds almost exactly uh, to the borders of Ukraine in uh, 1991. How could that be possible? Uh, for me, it's one of the perfect illustrations how some intellectual ideas, especially if they are human, if they are emancipatory, if they are democratic, how successful they could become in history. Yeah, I, I really liked your example of the map of Drahomano because I, I, I give it myself, this example all the time. When, when I hear the argument, okay, Stalin created Ukraine and all this, you know, crap, I say, look, Stalin was reacting and Lenin was reacting to the reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground was that you had already a generation of Ukrainian intellectuals who have who had drawn these maps and saying and, and why they drew these maps because they they were very much linked with uh, with uh, with science of ethnography and with uh, uh, with these things and uh, uh, for example when when a Ukrainian from Russian empire was crossing the border between empires and going to uh, uh, Lemberg, Lviv or or e and and Galicia and uh, were astonished to hear practically the same language and practically the same uh, melody in songs and and very very similar uh, dress codes and and this is what what gave this idea that the nation exists uh, across the borders of of empires and underneath the empires and this was the reality these people created and uh, the bolsheviks were only reacting to this because this was present on the ground but uh, let me ask um, about the topic that you mentioned. You mentioned Dnipro, and uh, this is indeed a very, very uh, important topic. And, and the whole topic, which is so much manipulated by the Russian propaganda about uh, eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine, they are saying that this is Russian-speaking cities, that it is all Russia, and... Uh, and Navarossia and all the rest. Uh, and uh, of course, they are playing with these names of the cities and who actually founded them and uh, claiming that uh, Yekaterina founded Odessa and, uh, and all the rest. But uh, we know from our, I mean, we know from our history that on, on many places where there was some so-called foundings, there were, of course, the, the, the 
inhabited places before. If we talk about uh, Odessa, we're talking about Haji Bay. If we talk about many cities in eastern uh, and uh, southern Ukraine, in many, many, many cases, we're talking about older Cossack settlements. Um, so, and, and, and when we look at the topography, uh, we actually see see it with our with our eyes so how should we address uh, the 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 history of eastern and southern ukraine how should we address um, the difficulties of this history and the difficulties of urbanization industrialization in this in these regions which quite often also led to russification and erasing the the ukrainian roots what is your approach first of all i i agree that we need a new well-written history of let's say this entire region actually historically speaking it was mostly in imperial times called uh, the uh, Yekaterinoslav Governamo so huge territory including Donetsk, Luhansk, Mariupol and other places and as you rightly said of course uh, we have those settlements almost everywhere in case of Dnipro, definitely. And actually, um, uh, Potemkin himself, so Prince Potemkin, one of Catherine's favorite, he openly stated it many times in his letters that we are building our new imperial uh, big city on the place of Cossack settlement. So for him it was obvious that <laughs> there was something before. And um, only nowadays, yeah, like some propaganda authors could pretend that it was created out of the blue uh, by the imperial power. Uh, but still, still, I would say that uh, we need uh, much more research done. And believe me, I was amazed in a rather, let's say, sad way that if we look at the modern uh, histories of uh, places like Kherson, right, Mykolaiv, Mariupol again. Uh, it's pretty hard to find uh, something. So this topic is not properly researched. Is not properly researched. And believe me, I'm not happy at all that my book on Dnipro is the very first English-speaking synthesis of the history of this huge and incredibly fascinating city. Because I would be much more pleased to say that there are 10 books already written and I'm kind of, you know, try to present my own uh, synthesis. No, I should have to do it like myself from the very beginning. And why so? Uh, you know, to a large extent, uh, that's also a result of, yeah, rather uh, tragic transformation of historical science in the 1930s. Because if you look back at Ukrainian historiography 1920s, golden age, if you wish, we'll actually see uh, a lot of projects that are kind of, you know, continue nowadays. Like you mentioned uh, Rory Finin's book. Rory, my good friend and a great colleague from Cambridge, right? Actually, what Rory is doing? He's doing something that was started in the 1920s by Krimsky and other scholars of the Crimean Hanat and uh, Crimean literature and Kremlin tradition. If we look at Ukrainian-Jewish relations, what is done nowadays by Petrovsky, Stern, and others, it is kind of a continuation of the Jewish Historical Commission of Ukrainian Academy of Sciences in the 1920s. There are two volumes, fascinating stuff, and uh, it was also one of Khrushchevsky's plans 
to initiate a new big series on the uh, so-called Pomudneva Ukraina, so southern Ukraine, including these like huge steppe eras, yeah, so Dnipro, Kherson, uh, Zaporizhia, Mariupol, and so so on. And it was all stopped. The volume that Khrushchevsky was uh, planning to publish, it was supposed to appear in early 30s, and it never happened because in 1929 we have this terrible um, staged uh, process of SVU in Kharkiv, where many Ukrainian historians and literary scholars were arrested and sentenced to uh, prison terms in uh, Stalinist Soviet Union. So nowadays we should do the job that was not done for years. And if we can start doing this job uh, again properly, seriously, we'll see that this imperial history of southern Ukraine is just a page in its story. It's not the beginning and not the end. <laughs> so it began before and it's not ended until now and it will not end also now. And what Putin's uh, and Russian, broadly speaking, propaganda tries to show that uh, like uh, it, it's kind of inevitable new Russia, yeah, and uh, Novorossiya once and forever. There is a book uh, published uh, under this idea in Moscow, yeah, by uh, one so-called historian. Uh, of course, it's just uh, it's just a propaganda game. It's just a propaganda game, and that is why. I think, again, we should not be afraid to acknowledge and to properly, seriously write down the history of uh, Yekaterinian project in Odessa, in Dnipro, in Mariupol, everywhere else, as part of a bigger project, as we all know, the project of the Russian Empire to move uh, up until Constantinople, yeah, so to the birthplace of Eastern Christianity, never happened and so, so on. Um, and uh, in this sense, like just getting rid of, uh, you know, like this, uh, let's say, let's put it like, let's use this term, like imperial enthusiasm <laughs> we have in uh, Potemkin letters, in uh, Katerina's uh, diaries, and looking on the facts on the ground, we'll see, for instance, that, uh, let, let me take this Dnipro example again, so this imperial uh, project, imperial city was envisioned as a huge, almost capital city, you know, with the university and huge premises and cathedrals and so, so on. And it was never done. Okay? So after Potemkin and Catherine's death, all those plans, they were just forgotten. So again, one could speak not just about imperial dreams, but also, it's very important, about imperial famous in southern Ukraine. So empire failed to a large extent to do what it wanted to do in our South. And then let us ask seriously, why so? Why it failed? Why it never happened? And why uh, even in so-called Russian-speaking Donbass, I'm of course very much against such categories, uh, we see the phenomena of um, not just uh, Ukrainian-speaking communities, but also we see the phenomenon of, let's say, a birthplace of so many prominent Ukrainian intellectuals. Yeah, you've mentioned some of them already. So, uh, I I would say it's not just a coincidence that people like uh, Vasil Stus, like Ivan Zuba, but also like Leonid Liman and many many others, that they were born and raised in uh, the Donbas region. 
So there was again this something that very much uh, helped not just to promote Ukrainian idea, but to give birth to texts and uh, projects that were not just Ukrainian, that were Ukrainian and also very human and very human rights oriented. For instance, uh, let us not forget, I'm always saying it here in Germany, that when it comes to, for instance, Babin Yar in Kiev, yeah, everybody knows Yevtushenko and this poem, which is actually, I'm not a big fan of. But uh, much less is known about Ivan Zuba and Ivan Zuba's speech in Babin Yar, yeah? And how Ivan Zuba actually linked the problem of remembering about the Jewish suffering during the war, and not only, with the suffering of Ukrainian people and with the aspiration for more freedom and more liberty for both nations. So we have again this anti-imperial connotation, which is very strong in case of Zuba, and of course not so strong in case of Yevtushenko. It's just the matter of fact uh, how and why and when we are capable to present it. And the same actually goes to completely forgotten uh, poem by Volodymyr Sosura about Babin Yar, because Sosura wrote about the tragedy of Jewish uh, people in, in Kiev already in the 40s, so much earlier than Yevtushenko. And actually some Ukrainian emigre writers, as uh, Dokia Humenna, as Yuri Klen, they raised those topics also in the 50s, in the 40s, in the 50s. But this part of the story is forgotten because they did it in Ukrainian and it was never translated and it's non-existent in sense of, let's say, Western perception. But if we start talking more about it and presenting it and raising those issues, I do hope that also such topics as Ukrainian-Jewish intellectual relations they will look differently than they look nowadays, uh, let's say, in this stereotypical perception of uh, many colleagues. Yes, this is, uh, I think, a very, very good point, and we can continue it and talk about, for example, the literature about Gulag and why in the West the uh, the novel of Ivan Bahrian, Sadgi Semansky, uh, is, is much less known than, uh, than, for example, text of Solzhenitsyn, which appeared, I think, several decades afterwards, right? And uh, uh, Dnipro is and other cities is are indeed remarkable because they are so much connected with Ukrainian literature. And one of the best uh, novels of the 20th century Ukrainian literature, Bezgruntu of Petrov Domantovich, is actually around. Dnipro and around this question of of big steps in the southern uh, eastern Ukraine and and the memory memory with this and how you deal with memory in the places where memory is erased by different by different historical circumstances so this is really a, a very important topic look andre this is fascinating um, conversation we're approaching to the end but i cannot omit uh, the question which uh, obviously um, it's always raised to you and from which we are started about about the Ukrainian nationalism and, and what is, should be our approach to, to, to Ukrainian nationalism, to persons like uh, figures like Bandera, to, uh, to Ounupa, to, to also to the instances when Ukrainians were not only victims but also perpetrators. Uh, to the question of participation in the Holocaust, to the question of Volin. So, what should be uh, what should be Ukrainian 
approach to, to these issues today? I think if we're talking about, let's say, the Ukrainian approach in the sense of approach of Ukrainian state, then it's one question. For instance, in case of uh, Volin, I'm saying that for years that Ukraine should uh, openly initiate International uh, Historians Commission, should of course allow all types of archaeological research in uh, the Romanian region. So Ukraine should not be afraid. Let's put it like very simply. Should not be afraid to talk about some yeah problematic or dark sides of uh, its past and also such actually terrible stories as this Volinian massacre. Because we're talking about uh, killing of uh, civilians, right? And that's actually also the issues that we unfortunately face nowadays. So I, I, I would say we should not be afraid to do it. Again, if we are talking, let's say, intellectually, not just like a memory politics, but intellectually, I think uh, Bandera don't solve uh, and this entire movement, yeah, what happened to the OUN uh, after the Second World War, uh, those are the topics that still uh, need to be researched. And for instance, I was very pleased to read uh, rather recent uh, Miroslav Shkandri's book on Ukrainian nationalism. It's a very good book, actually. It, it highly recommended, I would say. And uh, when we are doing this research, we should be aware. That's actually what I'm also trying to say to my students. But it's difficult, actually, to bring this uh, point. We should be aware that there was Bandera as a historical figure. So as a concrete uh, person who lived uh, in Galicia, yeah, who were um, integrated into the terrorist attacks by the OUN, who was arrested by the German, uh, by the Polish, by the Polish police, who was sent to prison, who then like released, then sent to prison by the Germans after the proclamation of the Act of Ukrainian Independence in Lviv, who spent almost the entire Second World War in Sachsenhausen, yeah, who lived afterwards in Munich and who was killed by the Soviet agent. That's the one story, and there is another story of the Bandera myth. Or Bandera mythology, and actually, uh, it's it's very important uh, not just in case of uh, Bandera, but also in case of Bogdan Khmelnytsky or Petlura, or even you know our recent politicians uh, like, um, uh, for instance, uh, the first president of independent Ukraine, Monit Kravchuk. We should be aware that there is a historical personality and there is historical mythology around it. Quite often, when we are talking about Bandera, we're actually speaking about those various mythological and propaganda images around him. And that's not the same. So the history of the Oun and the mythology and the propaganda around the Oun, there are two different, related, but still different topics. And, you know, Usually, like my German uh, colleagues, students, they are very surprised uh, to hear that uh, Bandera spent a time period from uh, autumn 41 to autumn 44 in Sachsenhausen. That's a sensation. Sometimes they even don't believe me. But it's the fact. He was there. He was not in Lviv, not in Volinia, not somewhere else. He was in Sachsenhausen. Uh, not far away from Berlin. And so if we are, again, if we are talking seriously and historically responsibly, there are no topics we should be afraid of. Yes, yes. And uh, just to remind uh, to our listeners that Sachsenhausen is a Nazi uh, camp and uh, 
Bandera was there uh, actually for the most events of the time. But at the same time, uh, I think you're right that, uh, that, that Ukrainians should not be afraid of talking about this because no nation is a saint, uh, no nation is composed of the saints and uh, there are good people and there are bad people and, uh, if we are, uh, and there are good, good events and there are bad events and there are tragic events and uh, uh, I think we should really be sincere about uh, the events during the Second World War because they will actually give us more uh, more understanding of what is happening now when when uh, ukrainians take the responsibility and defend their country and uh, perceive this fight as, as individual responsibility so um i hope that we we talked a lot about different aspects of the ukrainian history and that makes ukrainian history even more interesting more fascinating you see how many currents how many how many images, how many personalities, how many problematic things, how many controversial things in a good way are in the Ukrainian history, precisely because it's not that linear as uh, it, it might seem uh, to be. And uh, I hope that our conversation and other conversations as are an introduction for you, our listeners, to get to know more about Ukrainian history. Thank you, Andriy, Andriy Partnov. Uh, a famous Ukrainian historian was my guest, and uh, let's continue together to uh, to dig into Ukrainian history. Thank you, Andriy. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times, by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. The goal of this series is to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can support also our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.